Please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking this morning at verses 38 through 42 as we finish this chapter. Our title of our sermon this morning is The Good Portion. And our key words for our worshipers in training are service, anxious, and portion. Now I remember a story from my first uh, trip to Nigeria several years ago. We visited a small animist bush camp, and it was called Chikugi. They'd recently seen a few of its people come to faith in Christ as a result of the ongoing mission work there. It was, it's customary in Nigeria, whenever you enter into a bush camp, the first person you greet and sit down to and talk with is the camp elder. It is expected that you go through these very extensive greetings and uh, that you give them a small token or a small gift as a sign of peace and blessing and thanksgiving for the opportunity to join them. So we arrived in Chekugi and we met the camp elder and we sat under a tree with him and his family while they were shucking the kernels off of some dry corn. And several of his children and his wife had become Christians, but he had not. One of our interpreters was sitting there with us and pointing out all of the family members, and he said, that one over there is his oldest daughter. And I was looking down at the time, and I said, which one? And he said, the black one. Well, remember, I'm in Nigeria, so saying the black one is not very helpful. (laughs) Anyway, we met with the family and heard about their recent move to the location they were in. They're very nomadic people going from place to place. There was a new marriage there, and there were many young people who were soon to get married. Well, eventually, my friend Scott presents our gift to the camp elder. It was a digital watch from the dollar store. And while every one of those people have cell phones, none of them have ever seen a digital watch. So Scott wanted to make it a very nice and important presentation, and he said, as a gift from the dollar store in Bluffton, South Carolina, we present to you the gift of time. Well, later in the afternoon, Scott and I were standing off to the side having a conversation. We're watching all of the people as they work hard to prepare meals and wash clothes while the elder laid on his back under a shade tree with his foot propped up on a lower branch. And for hours, he stared at the watch and he rolled it over in his hand and he pushed the buttons. And I turned to Scott and I said, Scott, you just gave the gift of time to a guy who has nothing but time. Very well done. It's interesting, isn't it, that something so common to us is so foreign to much of the rest of the world. The Filipinos have a saying, Westerners are people with gods on their wrists. The Kenyans say, Westerners have watches but no time. Africans have time but no watches. That's true, isn't it? How often have you said or thought, there's just not enough hours in the day? And yet, more than any other generation in the history of the world, we are the most concerned with and precise about the time on the clock. Now, I'm certainly not bemoaning the fact that we live in a culture of promptness and timeliness. I think it's important. 
It's a sign of maturity and responsibility. But what we are left to grapple with is how it is that with a more keen awareness of time, we've now become not more efficient, but less. We've not been able to condense our duties into less time, but always require more. We've not slowed down. We're constantly speeding up. Os Guinness writes brilliantly, six centuries after the invention of the clock, the idea of timekeeping has become a euphemism. The idea of time saving, a joke. Perhaps, as we will discover this morning, we have been anxious and troubled about many things and have neglected the one thing that is necessary. Perhaps, as a people, we have chosen the lesser portion that fades with every passing minute in lieu of the good portion that will never be taken away. Today we will be instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ in the lives of Mary and Martha as he points out the good portion. So let's begin in verse 38. (laughs) Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now we're going to learn from this text that Martha has a sister named Mary. And we know from the gospel of John that the two girls were sisters of a man named Lazarus, the very Lazarus who was raised by Jesus from the dead. Now the three of them, we can discern from the text where we see them were committed followers of Jesus Christ. They were friends to Jesus. They understood him to be the Lord. They heard his teaching. They had listened to what he had been saying about the kingdom of God. They were dedicated to him. They believed in him. They loved him. So it was a great honor that Martha was able to open her home to Jesus and to have him uh, have the opportunity to serve him. Martha had a very important and undervalued spiritual gift. It is the gift of hospitality. She was seeking to do what the Apostle Paul commands of all Christians in Romans chapter 12. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. She was gifted in serving others. First Peter 4, Peter writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, all of us know that we have sometimes certain guests in our homes when we are more likely to put in an extraordinary effort to have our homes just right and to have the meals prepared with excellence when they're going to be there. Some people we're very close to or they're in our homes regularly, so we don't go to the same extreme efforts. Anything beyond the normal day-to-day display in our homes is not necessary with them. We reason. So I imagine what we see in the life of Martha is an extraordinary effort. Just broke the pulpit. To have everything just right in the household. After all, he is the Lord. He's to be given the highest degree of honor And service, nothing less than the best is going to be right for Jesus in her home. So Martha probably saw Jesus coming into the village. She saw he was wearied. She assumed he was hungry. 
because it was drawing close to mealtime. So she was thinking through all of the recipes she had on Pinterest and what she was going to use. Because of this story in the Bible, many people give Martha a bad rap. But I want to tell you, she is a noble, godly, beautiful, nurturing soul. Her desire is to see to it that Jesus is comfortable and that he is cared for. So Martha loves Jesus. She believes in Jesus. She was a close friend of Jesus. But she just didn't quite understand at first, much like the apostles we've seen many times, what exactly was to be her priority. Let's look at how it all unfolds. Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So here we have the crux of the matter for Martha. She is busy doing a good and right thing namely preparing to serve Jesus and the other guests. Her sister Mary, on the other hand, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening while he teaches. Let's think about Mary first. Now Mary, quite obviously like her sister, loves Jesus. She was here doing something that is forbidden in Jewish tradition. It was okay for a woman to be instructed in the Torah at a distance... But for a woman to sit at the feet of the teacher was a disgrace. Rabbinic writings include quotes like this, The man who teaches his daughter the Torah teaches her extravagance. And may the words of the Torah be burned. They should not be handed over to women. Now, according to the Jews, a woman could sit in the back of the, or, uh, of the synagogue or a place where the word was being taught, or they could sit in the woman's section of the synagogue where they were partitioned off from everyone else. But to come up and sit at the feet of a rabbi was absolutely unbearable. But we see something very clearly in the heart of Mary here, as well as in the purposes of Jesus. Jesus obviously did not have time nor concern for such unbiblical nonsense as was being promoted among the Jews. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people, not just men. Now we see here also Mary's heart of devotion, her desire to learn, her longing to be taught. She got as close as she could as to not miss a single solitary word. She didn't care about conventional niceties. She was there listening to the word of God. And the closer she could be, the better. Now Mary is demonstrating the true heart of a believer, isn't she? There's a desire, a longing to be near to Jesus and to take in his word. She is in awe of what she discovers. There's new and wondrous things being revealed to her from the word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, if we don't have a desire to hear the word of God, and if we don't prioritize the word of God in our lives, we really need to check our hearts. That's not to say that sometimes we're not wrongfully distracted from the word of God. It happens. But when we recognize it, 
We're called to repentance. We need to reset our lives. But if everything else is more important than the priority of God's word, then there's a problem. Let me put it this way. When anything interferes with the ordained means by which God has prescribed for hearing his word, and we are willing to compromise for these things, we really need to consider whether or not we are putting the word of God in its rightful place in our lives. It is by God's design that when we hear the word of God preached for both the hearer and for the preacher, we are sitting like Mary at the feet of Jesus. We are learning from the Lord. We are taking in all that he has for us that we might be conformed all the more to him. So when we allow ourselves when we are able to control the circumstances to be absent from the preaching of God's word, we are settling for lesser things and it's to our own detriment. Now let's consider Martha's response to Mary's uh, being at the feet of Jesus in their home. Look again at verse 40. Martha is distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, it's important to realize that there's no doubt that Martha herself also wanted to be sitting at Jesus's feet, listening and learning right alongside her sister. But Luke tells us she was distracted with much serving. I can imagine Martha rushing around the kitchen, getting a meal prepared, setting everything out for them to eat, and she's catching little bits and pieces of of what Jesus is saying here and there as she is able. Every time she walks by and she looks through the doorway and sees her sister sitting there listening intently, she begins to get a little more irritated and it starts to swell up inside of her. And so now instead of quietly preparing the food, pots are getting slammed down and utensils are getting shuffled with a lot of noise, sort of making her point. Don't mind me. I'm just in here slaving away for all of you while you enjoy the fellowship and learning from Jesus. Now Martha was probably a lot like some of you ladies, a very godly woman who wanted things to be just right. But by just right, it was the way that she thought just right was to be. And if others weren't willing to see it that way, they were going to be informed in a very direct manner. It seems as though no one ever really had to wonder where they stood with Martha. But you see, Martha's desire to serve Jesus turned into self-righteousness. She began to see what she was doing as the most important thing in that house at that time. And because of that, she became a bit incredulous at the fact that nobody else seemed to notice how much she was serving for their benefit. So what does she do? She not only rebukes her sister Mary, but she also rebukes the Lord Jesus Christ for whom she was supposedly serving in the first place. I'm sorry to come and break up your little party here. I'm sure it's just lovely. 
But Mary, maybe you forgot that you're, oh, I don't know, supposed to be helping me. And you, Jesus, you seem a bit aloof to the whole situation as well. Would you mind telling Mary to get her sweet self in here, pretty please? You see, Martha was doing a very good thing, right? Hospitality is commanded by God. It's commanded to show kindness to strangers. It's important for a woman to be a keeper of her home. It's a good thing to entertain guests. All of those are commendable things that Martha was engaged in. And of course, it was all for the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, the reality in itself shows us what she missed. The one small fact that she had, the son of the living God, sitting in her living room, teaching everyone who would hear about the kingdom of God. Her priorities were all wrong. And of course, when your priorities are wrong, the heart and the attitude of the heart goes with it. You see, Martha had obviously lost all the joy that was hers in serving others, and instead she became very frustrated. She was clearly mad. And as a result, she acted in a way that is almost shocking as we read it, isn't it? Because eventually all of her selfish frustration just pours out of her heart. Perhaps she hadn't heard Jesus teach before, out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths speak. How easy it is for us to start out with something good and right. But because your good thing doesn't give way when something better or more important comes along, the outrageous and sinful attitude comes out. It's really shocking how it comes out. Lord, don't you care? This is one of the most graceless things recorded in the Bible coming from the mouth of a believer to Jesus. Does he not care? More than you will ever know, Martha. He's the one on whom we cast all our cares because he cares so much. It's a graceless, unthinking, sad attack on Jesus. But as I said before, we need to be very careful as to not assume something negative about Martha here. And we fail to see ourselves. This really is the same way we respond sometimes, isn't it? When you and I are dedicated to a specific cause or effort, when we are serving with all that we've got in an effort to see the gospel move forward, but we run into roadblocks and we don't see equal dedication from others, and we feel overworked and frustrated because we're giving everything we've got and we still don't seem to be making any forward progress. If we're honest, we'll all admit that our tendency is to say, Lord, do you not care? You know, every local church seems to have black holes located all around it. I'm talking about black holes that we tend to walk toward, and when we get there, we begin to get so immersed that we are sucked in and we're never seen again. You see, Martha attempted to force Mary to serve Jesus in the very same way that she was serving Jesus. In Martha's mind, what she was doing was more important than what Mary was doing. Martha was sucked into a black hole. Jesus is about to teach. Where's Martha? She's over in the kitchen. 
We're going to pray for one another. Where's Martha? She's in the kitchen. We're sitting down to enjoy our meal. Where is Martha? She's over in the kitchen. Brothers and sisters, have you fallen into a black hole? And as a result, do you have tunnel vision that only sees one thing, deeming it to be more important than everything else? You see, we all have our areas of concern in life and ministry. It's easy for us to think that if someone isn't as involved in serving, serving students and engaging in foreign missions, raising funds for local outreach, supporting this or that ministry effort, if they're not as engaged in it as I am, then they're wrong. It's so easy to think that way about our primary concerns and to place the same expectations on others, isn't it? After all, what we're doing is a good thing. And if everyone was committed to the same Christian causes that we are committed to, if others were good Christians, they would certainly act and think the very same way as me. If they were really spiritual people who cared about the kingdom of God, they would realize that they should be more focused on what I'm doing. That's Martha's attitude. And when it goes unchecked, it can destroy the inner soul of service and it can destroy the unity of Christ's bride. Lord, do you not care? Of course he cares. But if we stop to consider that his ways are not our ways, his ends are not always our ends. If everything always went exactly the way we wanted it to go, the results would be far less than it will be when God is in control. And if everything we touch turns to gold, we begin to wonder why we need God at all. There's a great lesson here for Martha, and there's a great lesson here for you and I. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Martha is a self-appointed doer of many things. And as good as they were, she began to be smothered. Serving for Martha became a drudgery. Perhaps you've said it yourself as it's displayed in Martha's attitude. Fine. If nobody else is going to care about this, then I'm not going to do anything. Jesus saw it very clearly. She was incredulous. And so Jesus, after being spoken to with a raised voice and a hot temper, he very lovingly corrects her. Martha, Martha. In other words, calm down. Why are you so worked up? You are anxious. You are troubled about many things. Does that sound familiar? Are you pressed for time? Always checking your watch? Always wondering where you're going to find time to get everything done? Always looking ahead to get one thing done because you think once that one thing has passed, you'll be able to relax only to find out that something else is right around the corner. It seems as though most, if not all of us, could use this loving rebuke from Jesus this morning. You are anxious and troubled about many things. 
Jesus continues in verse 42. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. You see, Martha wasn't an enemy of Jesus. She wasn't indifferent to the words of Jesus. She was simply a lot like many of us, neglecting the one thing that is necessary to be anxious and troubled about many other things. Jesus says there is one thing that is necessary, and that one thing he calls the good portion. But what is that one thing? What is the good portion? In Psalm 27, verse 4, King David prays, One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Philippians 3:13, the apostle Paul writes, One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, what Mary had chosen was the good portion. It was the word of God. It was Jesus. It's God himself. The word portion can be used to describe a lot of different things. What we most often think of it is as a portion of food or our helping of food or, or part of an inheritance. The Bible uses this word quite regularly to speak of God as our portion. So as we think of it in terms of what we see in the scriptures, it is so frequently presented that the people were given a portion of land or a portion of the spoils of war. But the Bible continually tells us that the greatest portion, the one thing that we must have as our portion is God himself. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote, had a man all the world for his portion, it would be but a poor pittance. You see, what Martha missed, and what we miss so often, is what Mary had figured out. God is our all-sufficient portion. And his greatest concern is not with all that I'm doing in service to him. His greatest concern is that he is my all-sufficient portion. Brothers and sisters, God is an all-sufficient portion, is he not? His power is all-sufficient to protect us. His wisdom is all-sufficient to direct us. His mercy is all-sufficient to pardon us. His goodness is all-sufficient to provide for us. His word is all-sufficient to support us and strengthen us. His grace is all-sufficient to adorn us and enrich us. And His Spirit is all-sufficient to lead us and to comfort us. God is an all-sufficient portion to secure our souls and to supply all of our wants, to satisfy all of our desires, to answer all of our expectations, and to suppress all of our enemies. And after all is said and done, to bring us to glory. Now, what can you desire more than that? But you see, we so often take good things 
And we make those good things into the one thing that we pursue most fervently. And as a result, we end up neglecting the one thing that is most necessary. All earthly portions are insufficient portions. They can neither prevent afflictions, nor support the soul under afflictions, nor mitigate afflictions, nor deliver a man from afflictions. They cannot arm the soul against the temptations, nor lead the soul out of temptation. All of the creatures of the world are helpless without God. When God frowns, all the creatures in the world are not sufficient to cheer the soul. When God withdraws, all the creatures in the world are not sufficient to sustain the soul. When God clouds his face, all the creatures in the world are not sufficient to make it day in the soul. There is not enough in the whole of creation to content, to quiet, and to satisfy one single immortal soul. He that has most of the world will only strive to have more because a lot is never enough. Only a little bit more. But he that has least in the world has enough if his soul can say, the Lord is my portion. How desperately wrong can we get this? All of our striving, all of our striving as Christians to be the best parents, the best teachers, the best employees and employers, the best Sunday school teachers, the best school administrators, the best program directors, the best ministry coordinators, the best small group leaders and homemakers and homeschool families and deacons and pastors and elders and neighbors. We all want to be the best. And all of these strivings are but poor pittance when held up to the one thing that is necessary. Not one of these things are bad things to pursue excellence in. We are Christians. We should have a strong and noble work ethic and a great desire to pursue excellence and to do it well. But we could do all of these things well with much applause and receive many accolades from the world and say that the whole world were ours. But if we cannot say that the Lord is truly our portion, we will be miserable under all our worldly enjoyments. Brothers and sisters, if the time I've spent in my life as a Christian has taught me anything, it is this. To have God for my portion is absolutely necessary, for without it I am forever and ever undone. Are you so busy about the good things you do for the good of others and for the sake of the kingdom of God that you have set aside the one thing that is most satisfying and most important? Listen, if this is not piercing your heart in some way right now, if you're not thinking about at least one specific area in your life where you're simply too comfortably pursuing it as if perfect fulfillment would be a sufficient portion instead of God, I think the very problem we're addressing is a very real and present danger in your life. You've settled for less. And as a result, you're anxious and troubled about many things instead of holding on to the good portion, which is God. It is Christ. It is his word. It is central in the totality of your life. 
Or are you compromising for something less, even though what is less may be very worthy of pursuing? If you are a Christian, you have the greatest of all inheritances. Again, Thomas Brooks writes this. God is a portion peculiar to the saints. He is the hidden manna, the new name, the white stone, the bread to eat that others know not of. There is never a hardened Pharaoh in the world that can say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a murdering Saul in the world who can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a painted bloody Jezebel in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a cunning Ahithophel in the world that can say truly the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a proud Haman in the world who can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a tyrannical Nebuchadnezzar in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is ever a crafty Herod in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a rich dives in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a treacherous Judas in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a hypocritical Simon Magus in the world who can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never an apostatizing Demas in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. Nor there is never a persecuting scribe or Pharisee in the world that can truly say the Lord is my portion. It is only the saint that can truly say the Lord is my portion. For God is peculiarly his. He is only his. God is such a portion that no friend, no foe, no man, no enemy, no devil can ever rob a Christian of. Oh, Christian, God is so yours in Christ and so yours by covenant and so yours by promise and so yours by purchase and so yours by conquest and so yours by donation and so yours by marriage union and communion and so yours by the earnestness of the Spirit and so yours by the feelings and witnessings of the Spirit that no power or policy on earth can ever steal or cheat or rob you of your portion. He is not only our God for the present, nor he will not be only our God for a short time longer. Oh, no. But he will be our God forever and ever. And if God be once your portion, he will be forever your portion. Amen. And for all the rest of Martha's days, she chose the good portion. In John 11, we read her great confession of Christ. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother Lazarus will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You see, forevermore, 
Martha sat with Mary at Jesus' feet. She was an avid hearer of the word of God. And the church from the very beginning has been built on granite like her confession. And so the question for all of us is this. Are we sitting at the feet of Jesus with Martha and with Mary? And we must ask, is it really that there aren't enough hours in the day? Perhaps it's not that there's a flaw in God's design. Perhaps it's a flaw in our anxious and troubled hearts to assume that the world, that all that the world requires of us and all that we require of ourselves is a greater portion to us than the portion of God himself. Our church is full of hard-driving, ministry-minded people, and I am so thankful for that. But we must all ask, are our hearts holding to that which is truly the good portion? Are we holding most dearly to that one thing that is necessary? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to tell you that your portion, whatever it is, is going to rot and it will spoil. You may have no intention in your heart of ever turning to Christ, or you may assume that there will be time later if you want to simply live in the world now. What a foolish, deadly pursuit. You can gather all the things of the world into bigger and bigger storage barns, but when you are gone, they are more, no more useful to you than your heart and lungs. There's only one portion provided that is of any lasting value whatsoever, and that is Jesus Christ. The only Savior, the only King, the only Lord, the one necessary portion of life everlasting. Repent and believe the gospel. Christian, repent of your anxious and troubled heart over all the things in your life of lesser value, and remember the one necessary thing, Remember that God is our forever portion.